Good morning. Could you stand, please, as we begin our service in prayer? Our Father and our God, we lift your name on high. That is the purpose for us coming here this morning, to lift your name on high. Our desire is to worship you. You're the only true God, all wise and all knowing and all powerful, the sovereign creator of the universe. It is always a privilege for us to be here, to come into your presence, to worship you. As we begin our service this morning, Father, we surrender to you every area of our being so that what is said and done would bring glory and bring honor to your precious name. Please, my Father, be pleased to receive our worship. May it come from a heart that is pure and clean. We thank you for your love, your unconditional love, and your grace and your compassion. We thank you for saving us and for allowing us to worship you. Bless this time now as we dedicate this service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And please stay standing. Sorry, Pastor Lee can sit. <laughs> um, the words will be on the screen, but also if you'd like to turn in your, in your um, hymnals, it's number 380, Jesus Saves. We have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, spread the tidings all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, bear the news to every land, line the streets and cross the waves, onward tears our Lord's command. Oh, 
don't have a thousand tongues here this morning, but we can sing like tens of thousands. So let's join together and sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise.
may be seated. Okay, this morning as we prepare to go into our prayer time, I would ask you to pause with us, please. This is a very special time during our service when we bring those who are sick within our assembly or their family members or loved ones who have relatives in our assembly. This is the time that we set aside to bring them before the Lord. So pause with me, please. Bow with me. We have a number of praises, but a number of prayer requests. Let us go now into our prayer time. We thank you, thank God for um, Pastor Lee's continued improvement. Uh, had a good checkup on Friday, and uh, we continue to progress. But of course, let us continue to pray for Pastor Lee. Uh, Sister Peggy, I think I seen her out this morning. She is recuperating well after eye surgery. And uh, Stanley Burroughs, the husband of Idina Burroughs, is out of hospital. Uh, so is Charles Knowles, the father of uh, brother Ambrose. And Madge Ferguson, uh, Nelson's, Ferguson's wife with Pedro's mother, has also been released from hospital uh, this morning. So we thank God that uh, they have made improvements uh, to the point where they were discharged, and we just need to continue to pray that their recovering would continue. But of course, we have new matters for prayer. Uh, the update on Justin Harvey, who is the grandson of Marguerite Pinder, he is scheduled for a pre-op procedure on March 28th before undergoing the actual surgical procedure on March 30th. That surgery is to remove a tumor behind his eye, so remember, need to keep him in prayer also. Thelma Pifram, uh, Rosie Thrower's sister, is scheduled for heart surgery tomorrow. We need to remember to pray for her. And Yona Carey is anticip anticipating back surgery uh, in the very near future. Angela Knowles, known as Annie, as Thelma Marie's sister, has to undergo surgery and is in need of blood. Uh, she is at PMH, and so any donor, who, anybody who is able to donate blood will do so in her name at PMH. Ray Russell, who is Betty Russell's oldest son, is in hospital. And Anissa Albury, that's Charlie and Zena's daughter, uh, has been hospitalized in the U.S. We don't have no update, at least not at the moment, but let us continue to remember Anissa and, of course, the rest of the family at this time. Jenny Sawyer is in hospital with a broken hip. And Betty Antonio, that's the mother of Terence Antonio, is in hospital awaiting surgery. She's also experiencing some complications. So let us remember to bring this dear lady before the Lord. And Kim Cambridge is Carmen's mother's, Carmen Moss's sister, is in rehab in the US, uh, making progress, but we still need to continue to pray for her. And um, James Cartwright, that's Marissa Wallace's dad, is recuperating at home. Remember, need to pray for him at uh, this time. And Clara Stewart, uh, on the loss of her grandfather, 
uh, Marshall Higgs, and of course those being treated for cancer, Kenny Sawyer, Dr. Patrick Subgeo, Joyce Reading, Caroline, Caroline Grunlin, and Judy Penn Robinson. Our short ends, Gerald Albury, Pleasant Bridgewater, Winnie Collins, Douglas Darling, Pastor Ed Gadet, Wilfred Jack Sr., Viola Pinder, and Annie Sands. Our family for today is Nathan and Ruth Cash. Our missions is Telios Ministries in Nassau, and the ministry is the Christian, Christian Counseling Center. Our Father and our God, we thank you for uh, all that has been shared. And we are grateful that we can come to you with the full assurance of faith that as a loving Father, you love each of us. You've touched those who've improved and is re improving, recovering. And we believe that those who are either hospitalized, facing surgery, bereaved, being treated for cancer, or just reclining at home because of um, being bedridden. We know that you are with each of them. We know that you love each one. We ask, my Father, that you would visit each one in a very special, very meaningful, very personal way, and that you would comfort each one, because you are the God of all comfort, and that you would touch each body, that you would bring healing in keeping with your will, that you would comfort those who are bereaved, that you would encourage the hearts of those who are downtrodden. You've heard the names mentioned. You know them, each one, personally. We thank you for being a good and a compassionate God. We ask, my Father, that you would surround each one with your love and care, and that you'd be very near and dear to each one. Thank you for the preciousness of your comfort and your embrace and your love. Oh, God, you're the only one we can turn to in our moment of need, knowing that you care about us deeply. You'll never turn us away. Hear the prayers that have been raised on behalf of these precious saints. Be with them all in a very special way. Provide finances wherever there is a need. Bring encouragement wherever there is discouragement. Bring life wherever there is illness. Bring healing, Lord, all in keeping with your will. We're so thankful and so grateful that we can come into your presence knowing that we will obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In Jesus' name. Just before we... Um, have the prayer for the offering. There's one note uh, with regards to the faith promise investment envelopes. We are presently out of the envelopes, but if you have not as yet gotten a card and you need a card, you can raise your hand as the ushers come around 
and you can obtain a card and the envelopes will be available later. Maybe not today, maybe next Sunday, or maybe tonight. But the envelopes we're out of, the cards we have. So if you want to get a card, just raise your hand. You'll be able to get the card this morning. Pause with me now, please, as we uh, receive our offering. Our Father, we thank you again that we can play a part in giving back to you a portion of what you've entrusted to us. This is another aspect of our worship. And we thank you that we can honor you in this way. We thank you for how you have enabled us and blessed us financially. This morning we have the privilege to give back to you from a portion of what you have entrusted to us as your managers. We have been given the privilege to manage your resources. And we ask that you would continue to give us uh, more wisdom in how we can wisely manage your resources. We thank you that we can play this part. Bless the gift and the giver. Help us to be generous, Lord, and giving back to you. So your work could continue. And the furtherance of the gospel going around the world. Bless this gift. In Jesus' name.
Good morning again. We want to welcome each and every one of you. Uh, we thank you for coming. Thank you for your presence here this morning. And we pray that uh, not only would you uh, receive a blessing, but that you'd give God a blessing also. This morning we have one name as a, a visitor, and that is Delisa Sanders. Uh, Delisa, where are you? We'd like to welcome you. Good. Right to my left. Let's welcome Delisa. I'm wondering if there is any other first-time visitors uh, with us this morning that you, you may not have had the opportunity to uh, turn in uh, your name to uh, the greeters at front. But if you're here for the very first time, we'd like to recognize you. Anybody in the lower section, the balcony? Okay, nobody. All right, well, we, we welcome each and every one of you. Uh, I notice um, Amy Beth. Um, Brother Dudrick? Brother Duddy? Hey, all right, let's welcome Brother Dudrick Hunt. We also have Amy Beth Lowe. I don't remember your marriage name, but Amy Beth Lowe, that's the daughter of Paul and Laura Lowe. Let's welcome her. Okay, the kids will now leave for Junior Church, and as they do, of course, this is our time to greet each other, make sure to uh, greet our visitors, and uh, we can hug each other. Thank you so much. God bless you. Tendeth my 
sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.
I think one of the greatest gifts you can really give to the next generation uh, is faithfulness and fidelity in, in, in marriage. You are ancestors to someone yet to come. Dave, I really have lost my feelings for you. We were in an argument, and I grabbed her as hard as I could, and I threw her down on the bed. During my depression, I just uh, did some things that really hurt Tony, hurt him real badly, and, and hurt our marriage. Where does marriage always go wrong? It's when I want the right to set the rules by which this relationship would work. You don't have issues. You are the issue, both of you. Our marriage is uh, the central glue as an institution that is holding civilization together. We are responsible then to turn and to forgive others, even when it's horrendous sin. I want to talk to you, but um, I feel a lot better if you put that knife down. You cannot have a successful marriage without the invasion of the supernatural. What the cross promises a marriage is fresh starts and new beginnings. That's going to be a great seminar. Amen? How many of you are going to be there? Now, just to attend a marriage seminar is not an admission that you're having problems in your marriage, mind you. You can always make a good thing better. Amen? So we encourage you to, uh, to take part in that. By the way, this isn't as bad as it looks, okay? Uh, I just have, there's nothing wrong with my arm. I'm just supposed to keep it immobilized until the wound is healed and so on. So that's, it isn't as bad as it looks. Um, the resurrection song, you know it as the Easter song. They have these uh, little cards in the foyer if you would like to use it as a means of inviting others out to it. We encourage you to do that. This is another great event coming up, two tremendous events the marriage seminar, and also the resurrection song. Make sure you get one, all right? Amen. We had the uh, afterglow of the missions in our singing this morning again, which was good. And that's a good lead-in for me to read a note that we received from the O'Neills when they left. And I just like to read it because I think it's very encouraging. 
He says, Dear Calvary Bible Church, thank you for such wonderfully wonderfully hospitality. Thank you for allowing us to come and minister to you. What wonderful, lovely, and open hearts for the things of God. What a joy to set back and see God's love and hearts for the nations written all over this church. We have been most blessed. A joy to see your love for Christ, the way you serve each other, and your desire to see people come to know him. Also, your willingness to send your daughters and sons to the nations. All brings great joy to our hearts, and we know it does to Jesus also. Be assured of our prayers for you now and in the days to come. May many more be sent out from the church to serve him. May many be added to the church also. We love you, the O'Neills, Jim and Sterling. P.S. Thanks for the bag of goodies too. That's especially for Andrea because she sets up a lot of things for them. We appreciate that note from them. Amen? Also, to bring you up to date, as far as the uh, offerings are concerned, the commitments for the missions for the year. The General Missions Fund, $73,760 so far. The Camp Bahamas Gym, 3800 The Community Farm, 200 The Haiti Sum Missions, $200. And the Barnabas Fund Pakistan's, Pakistanian School is $6,080. That's the amount so far, and we thank God for you. We remind you again, if you didn't get an envelope or a card, please be sure to pick one up as you leave if you didn't get one just now. Now, we, if you have your Bibles, I want you to please turn to Second Corinthians again as we continue our study. We've been interrupted, of course, because of the missions conference. We'd probably be interrupted again because of the resurrection season but we will continue moving in our exposition of this tremendous epistle, 2 Corinthians, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. So I encourage you to get your Bibles. We will have most of it on the screen, but I still would like for you, please, to follow in your Bibles. Now, as I explained last time, uh, when we started the series, Paul is trying to defend himself as an apostle against the attacks of false teachers who had come in to the church after he had left. Fulfilling a prophecy, by the way, that he mentioned in Acts chapter 20 when he left the Ephesians church, he said that after his going, some will come and bring in all kinds of false teachings. And that's exactly what we see happening in Corinth as well. That's why the other day someone was writing on Facebook that we need to go back to the New Testament church. My question is, what New Testament church? Every New Testament church had problems, severe problems. There was not a perfect New Testament church. Corinth certainly wasn't. Ephesus wasn't, although a lot of people think it was. But when you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus says he's really spit them out of the mouth and so on. And so there's no such thing as a perfect New Testament church. We have guidelines as to how we can set the church up, but as to say that we have a model in the New Testament, I don't think you'll find that. Perhaps the closest to a model is the church at Thessalonica, where God says that 
spread, that coming out from them, the gospel is spread to the whole world and that they are known for that. That's the closest we get to any church being sought of a model. But as I explained last time, Paul's concern for his third visit to the Corinthians church and his third letter actually, as I mentioned before, the letter that we're looking at now, 2 Corinthians, is probably the third letter he wrote, nor the second one. The third one is probably lost. Now some people say, well, what does that mean? If he wrote it, why didn't God allow it to be found or to be a part of the canon as we have it today? Well, I can't answer that question. Maybe the letter was such a severe one, Paul, the Lord didn't want that particular letter to be gotten to all the people. I don't know. But the point is, it is not a part of our canon. Again, this demonstrates the uniqueness of Revelation. God selects specifically what he wants his people to know. Not everything that Jesus said or did do we have recorded. Not everything that the apostles wrote do we have recorded. God has just, through his sovereign will, chosen, selected what he wanted us to know. And what he has revealed to us, although it might not be complete, is nonetheless sufficient for us to know how to come into fellowship with him and how to live a life that glorifies him. But anyway, the Spirit of God didn't seem to want to have us to have this letter because, as I said, I believe this was a doozy of a letter. And he is, he was, this is such a harsh letter, in fact, that uh, it gave him what I call a spiritual meltdown while he was waiting to hear the response from the people. He was really under pressure. In fact, I think he underwent some, even some form of spiritual depression because he was wondering how the people was going to receive this harsh letter that he sent to them. But he was confident, greatly encouraged, and relieved by the arrival of Titus in Macedonia. He was waiting for Titus to come back because Titus brought the news now that the Corinthians had received the letter well and had responded to his request to discipline a man or some individual that uh, he wanted them to do, but they wouldn't do it. Now, there's a big discussion as to, as to whether or not this person is the same person written about in 1 Corinthians 5 or this is someone else. I kind of think that is somebody else because of the different kind of approach that Paul makes to it. But we'll talk more about that when we come to chapter 7 when he talks about the different kinds of repentance. Paul says there's really two kinds of repentance. There's a repentance that leads to confession of sin and fellowship with God, and there's a repentance also of the world. It's just words. It doesn't mean anything at all. And he's going to describe that later on as well. But anyway, in chapter 7, which we're going to look at later on, it shows there that the people at Corinth had finally submitted to Paul's instructions to discipline their sinning brother. But there were still some lingering criticisms on a part of the church brought about by the false teachers. These criticism and complaints led some members of the church to accuse Paul of being uh, indecisive as a, an apostle if he was one because they questioned his authority and his credibility, his authenticity as an apostle. 
because he said he was coming to visit them, but he didn't. He changed his mind. And they said an apostle shouldn't do that. An apostle, if he says something, it should be that way. He shouldn't change your mind and everything. Paul deals with that quite a bit throughout this chapter, this book, as we will see. Now, he wanted to clear up these grievances before going back the third time. That's why he wrote the second letter, and that's why he's writing this letter as well. In chapters 8 and 9, he will explain that one reason for his delay was to give them more time to properly prepare their offering for the Jerusalem saints that were going through a time of famine. And we're going to be looking at that because chapters 8 and 9 in Second Corinthians gives us the New Testament pattern for giving today, as in contrast to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, when it comes to tithing. And we'll be looking at that in chapters 8 and 9. And then in chapter 12, he says another reason why he didn't come is because he wanted them to take care of some of the problems they had themselves. We're going to be looking at these as we get into the book. Now, he says, why I am delaying my coming is because when I come, I want us to be joyful rather than to be sorrowful. And he wants to be sure all of these things are cleared up before he gets back to them. So rather than coming and they have a lot of problems and it's a sorrowful type of a meeting, he wants everything to be cleared up so when he gets to them, it'll be a joyful type of a meeting. Now, Paul's opponents, the false teachers that, that we call Judaizers, they were attacking his personal character in order to discredit his ministry before the Corinthians. This is the tactic that is used by many. If they cannot get you for content, they look to character. And that's what they're doing here. We have that today, even with politics. You don't hear anybody criticizing too much a, a kind of plan or a program uh, of politicians. They would accuse them of lying, of stealing, of everything else, but rather than criticizing or examining their causes as such. That's exactly what the Judaizers are doing here. They called Paul indecisive, that he was a liar because he, did not, he was not a true prophet. They said that he demeaned the apostleship if he was in fact an apostle because he went to work. And he said an apostle wouldn't work for a living. And he accused him of all kinds of different things. And Paul is dealing with all of these things in this book. And that's why when you read this book, I feel good about it. Because Paul, who's an apostle, got so many criticisms for his ministry. And he defended it, and he defended it very strongly. And I think it's important for us as leaders to understand that we are going to be criticized, and that we have a right and we have a responsibility to respond in a responsive way as well. But now, we ended up last time where he denounced these, these uh, false teachers for peddling the word of God for profit. In other words, he turns the charges of the Judaizers back against them. Everything that they were charging him for, he charged them for. This is what we call uh, displacement, if you want. The Judaizers was displacing their problems onto Paul. Paul just reverses it now. He denounced them for peddling the word of God and for profit and promoting themselves with letters of commendation from men. In verse 5, you remember, Paul says his commendation was not from man, but his commendation was from God. Now, beginning at verse 6, and that's what I'd like for you to uh, turn to right now, 
he turns his focus away now from himself and he focuses specifically on his ministry. And when he does this, he gives us one of the most remarkable teachings concerning the gospel ministry found anywhere in the scriptures, right here in this chapter. It tells us of the true essence and significance of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He presents a detailed description then of the nature of the gospel ministry under the new covenant itself and also of the fantastic blessings we have under the new covenant which was announced at the institution of the Lord's Supper and inaugurated through the death of Christ on Calvary. And I'm just amazed at the amount of spiritual and practical truth that Paul squeezes into this short chapter here. And I'm also really perplexed as to how we have missed the fact that we are living and ministering under a new covenant and not, a new, not the old covenant. If we get a hold of that, a lot of things that we're doing will be changed. I'll be talking a lot about this in my next message because do you know something? The way we gather, you could go to the scriptures, you'll find nowhere in scripture any meeting described the way we have at the Church of Jesus Christ. Nowhere. None. It's a whole new approach to ministry under the new covenant, especially when it comes to worship. And that's what I'll be looking at next time, Lord willing. But now I want to look at this passage in detail. And I mean in detail because it's such a tremendous truth for us as the people of God today. In verse 6 then, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, Paul begins to talk about the covenants, the new covenant and the old covenant, and the contrast. He contrasts the old covenant, which is represented by the law, and the new covenant, which is represented by the gospel. I want you to make that clear. Paul takes the old covenant and says that's the law especially the law of Moses. He takes the new covenant and he says that's the gospel. And this is what he is going to be con contrasting as he goes along. Now, if you go to the scriptures, you'll see the old covenant given in uh, Exodus chapter 20, where we have the law given on Mount Sinai. You, have, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. You must not bow down to them. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. You must not have any other God but me and so on. Throughout the entire giving of the command, all you see again and again is, you must not, you must not, you must not. The focus is on the individual not doing something. Now, when you come to the new covenant as given uh, in the Old Testament, this is what it says. This is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors. Nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. 
For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This is one of the first contrasts you see between the Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant was something that we must do. The New Covenant is what God does himself. It's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon God. Whereas in the Old Covenant, everything was dependent upon us. Now those who were criticizing Paul so severely in Corinth were the Judaizers. These were the men who sought to mix law and grace. They taught Christians that they must observe certain portions of the law of Moses in order to be fully accepted by God. So in actuality, they were ministering the gospel under the rules of the Old Covenant. Now this is important for you to understand if you're going to see Paul's concern. They were ministering the gospel under the rules of the Old Covenant. Something which Paul will show here is impossible to do. He says in Galatians when he's talking about the same thing, anybody who tries to do this has fallen from grace. The two just does not mix. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant does not mix. They cannot coexist. That's Paul's point. And by the way, that's one of the big problems in the church today. We're still trying to live under both the Old and New Covenant and Paul says it cannot be done at all. And so he's going to demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. He begins by saying that God, not man, has made him competent as a servant of a new covenant. See, the false teachers were depending upon the commendation and the recommendation they got from men. That was the old covenant idea. You have to have approval from man. You have to do something. Man has to do something. Paul is saying, it's not so with me as a minister of the new covenant, under the new covenant. My competency comes from God alone. He did not need letters of commendations written by men on pen or paper. His commendation was to change lives of the Corinthians themselves. He can compare that to the old covenant that was written on stone. That was a contrast he brought about as well. He says on one it was brought about by the power of man trying to do something in obeying the law, but under the new covenant, the new life is brought about by the power of the Spirit of God working from within. The Corinthians' lives would change not by obedience to the law, he is saying, which they could not accomplish anyway, but by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Now, it's important for us to see these contrasts as we go through this passage because that's Paul's point here. Paul concludes that the believer's adequacy should also be only in God in verse 5. But the major focus of his argument is his contrast between the old and new covenants. The new covenant was just simply more adequate and superior than the old. Now, remember, last time I mentioned that a covenant is a promise. It's an agreement or testament. It's made by what we quite describe as consenting adults. Certain conditions are made and those who are taking part in the covenant or the agreement or the testament would agree on them. Here's how one Bible commentator explains it. Quote, The old covenant was the legal system delivered by God to Moses. Under it, blessing was conditioned upon obedience. It was a covenant of works. It was an agreement between God and man that if man did his part, 
God would do his also. But because it depended on man, it could not produce righteousness. The new covenant is the gospel. Under it, God covenants to bless man freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, everything under the new covenant depends on God and not on man. Therefore, the new covenant is able to accomplish what the old covenant could never do. End of quote. This is what Paul is talking about in this chapter. Now, Paul goes on to give several dramatic contrasts between the law and the gospel. And if you, friends, if you really get this, it will help you to see your Christian life in a whole different way. He begins in verse 6, as I said, by saying, notice, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit, or spirit, capital S or not, gives life. Now, this is a verse that I mentioned last time as often being misinterpreted because they don't see the connection with the covenant. The letter here refers to the law of Moses. It's not just a legalistic way of doing something. The letter here refers to the law of Moses and the spirit refers to the gospel of the grace of God. And so when Paul says that the letter kills, he's speaking of the ministry of the law. The law condemns all who fail to keep its precepts as stipulated by God. He says this clearly, for instance, in Romans 3.20. He says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And in Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Friends, listen now. God never intended the law to be the means of giving life. It was always designed to bring the knowledge of sin and to convict of sin, but never to provide life. On the other hand, the new covenant is called spirit because the new covenant represents the spiritual fulfillment of the old covenant. What the law demanded but could never produce is now brought into effect by the gospel. That's Paul's point. Now verses 7 and 8 continues the contrast between the two covenants. He says, the old way with laws etched in stone. Now notice, this is referring specifically to the Ten Commandments. There can be no escaping this. We're making this point because this is one of the major teachings, of course, of Seventh-day Adventism, saying that, no, the Old Testament was not done away with the old covenant, the old economy. But here, when it talks about the laws etched in stone, it's talking about the Ten Commandments because those were the ones that were etched in stone. Now, notice what he says. It led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at the face of Moses. Paul will now show another contrast between the law and the gospel of grace in this passage. Notice it says, For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. A lot of folk do not understand this passage. What Paul is saying here is, that although the giving of the law was glorious, the giving of the gospel of grace was even much more glorious. Notice it says, His face, Moses' face, shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Notice now, already fading away. This is the heart of the contrast 
that Paul is bringing about between the old and new covenant. The glory of the law began fading away as soon as it was given. That's the point. The law was not given to stay. It was given to fade away. It was only to serve a purpose on a temporary basis. Paul is specifically contrasting then the glory that attended the giving of the law with the glory that is contact, connected with the gospel. Note very carefully now. Paul does not say that there was no glory connected with the giving of the law. He didn't say that. Because that definitely would not, was not the case. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, there were great manifestations of the divine presence of God and the power of God. Exodus 19 brings this out. In fact, as Moses stood there communing with God, his own face began to shine, reflecting the glory that came from that giving of the law. So Moses stood there, his face began to shine, which reflected the splendor and glory of God. The children of Israel could not look at the face of Moses for long. They couldn't gaze at it because of the glory of his countenance. It was too dazzling for them to view. But then Paul says these significant words, which glory was passing away. This means that the bright shining that appeared on the face of Moses was not permanent. It was a temporary passing glory. Now the spiritual meaning of this is that the glory of the old covenant was temporary by its very nature. By its very nature, it was temporary. We could say it was born to die and begin dying the moment it was born. That's the nature of the law. This was a part of its very essence. It was not meant to last. The law had a definite function, but was only temporary, not permanent. The law was given to reveal sin, to reveal the unholiness of man as compared or contrasted with the holiness of God. The law was desired to play, or rather to display the holy requirements of a holy God. In that sense, it was glorious, but it was given only until the time of Christ who is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to those who believe. The law was a shadow. Jesus is a substance. The law was a picture of better things to come. And those things find their reality in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is what Paul is stressing again and again in this passage. And he repeats the same truth over and over because it's such an important one. We are not under the law in the, any circumstances at all. We are under the new covenant. Notice what he says in verse 8. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? Of course, the answer is yes. Paul is again emphasizing the contrast between these two covenants. He says we need to expect a new and a greater glory, a new way of doing things doing things under the new covenant. Notice what he says. The ministry of the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit giving life, refers to the gospel. The Spirit of God works through the preaching of the gospel. And in turn, the Spirit of God is ministered to those who receive the good news of salvation. And so notice the contrast. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? 
The Holy Spirit is just another way of saying the gospel. The Spirit gives life through the gospel. It gives life. The old covenant, the law, could never give life. It could only pronounce death. Verse 9 says, If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, iPod is running faster than I am. If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? See the contrast there? Condemnation or separation from God, old covenant. Versus justification and being made right with God, new covenant. Here, in this verse, the old covenant is called the ministry of condemnation. Now please, that is referring to the Ten Commandments. Because we're still talking about the law that was etched on stones. It is the ministry of condemnation. That was the result of the old, test, of the old covenant. Condemnation, not life. The old covenant brought condemnation to all men because no one could perfectly keep the law. Yet, in spite of that, there was still a certain glory connected with it. It had a real purpose and a real usefulness for the time. But the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Someone has said, and I quote, The glories of Calvary far eclipse the glories of Sinai. I agree with that. The glories of Calvary far eclipses the glories of Sinai. Verse 10. In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. Now this is a tremendous statement here. The first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. In other words, now listen carefully to this. Although the old covenant, which is represented by the law, was glorious, compared to the new covenant represented by the gospel, that glory was nothing. That's what he's saying. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Paul's point is that the new, that the new covenant, which is ratified by the debt of Jesus Christ, is superior to the law in every way. So much and so in fact that there's really no adequate comparison between them. Now this is quite an absolute statement. Paul is saying that when you compare the new covenant with the old covenant, there's really no comparison. None at all. This verse expresses to us then a strong comparison and says that when the two covenants are placed side by side, one completely outshines the other. In other words, the new covenant surpasses and completely and absolutely extinguishes the old covenant, even as the sunlight diminishes and overcomes the light of a matchstick. For instance, you know, you're in a dark room, you light a match, it's dark, right? But let the sun comes in and shine into that room. All of a sudden, you can't even hardly see the light on the match. That's what Paul is saying happening here to the old and new covenant. When the new covenant comes in, it so overshadows 
overcomes, it absolutely extinguishes the old covenant altogether. Verse 11. So, if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, literally the text says, was glorious in its glory. So if the old way, which, if the old way which has been replaced, was glorious in its glory, how much more glorious in its glory is the new, which remains forever? Notice another contrast here. Temporary versus forever. Transient versus permanent. The thought is that although glory accompanied the giving of the law, glory is the very element, essence, or substance of the new covenant. Glory, just, glory in other words, is not just simply accompanied the giving of the new covenant. The new covenant is glorious in itself by its very nature. That was not true of the old covenant. Glory accompanied it, but glory was not a part of the essence or nature of the old covenant. That's different with the new covenant. That's different with the gospel. The glory, it is glorious in its sense by its very nature. Now, this verse then contrasts the transient, temporary character of the law and the permanent character of the gospel. What is passing away, again I emphasize, can only refer to the Ten Commandments, which Paul calls the ministry of death, written and engraved on stone. This is very important for us to see. Very important. That's why he could make the application in verse 12. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. This is an important statement here. The old covenant, which was temporary in nature, represented by the law, did not provide such assurance or confidence in its ministry. Paul is trying to demonstrate that what the false teachers were doing in Corinth, they could not do with the kind of confidence that he could do in ministering the gospel. Because they could only provide something that was temporary, something that led to condemnation, while he, through the gospel, could provide that which leads to life and is permanent. And so the confidence that Paul refers to here is his conviction that the glory of the gospel will never fade or become dim. That's what he's talking about. The glory of the gospel will never fade or become dim. Because of this strong assurance, Paul speaks the word of God with boldness. He has nothing to hide. He does not have to use a veil because this glory will not fade away. With the gospel, everything is open and clear. The gospel speaks clearly and plainly with full assurance on everything that pertains to life and godliness and about God himself. Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will never pass away. Its glory will never pass away. Its life-giving power is forever. It's eternal. It's permanent. Not only that, Paul goes on to say that we, the recipients of the gospel, we get better and better and go from glory to glory the more we gaze into the new covenant, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is manifested in the gospel, the word of God. That's why he says in verse 13, and he sort of reiterates his truth. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory. 
even though it was destined to fade away. Paul is saying, listen, my ministry is even more powerful than the ministry of Moses when he gave this. We are not like Moses who had to cover his face. Now, as I've already stated, it's important to note that what Moses was hiding with the veil, he was not hiding the glory itself. He was hiding the fact that the glory was fading away. That's one of the most important parts of this text. He wasn't hiding the glory. The glory was there. What he was hiding was the fading away of the glory. He didn't want the people to realize that this was only a temporary fix as his war. Paul, or rather Moses, was hiding the fact that the glory associated with law was only temporary. The longer they watched it, the more they would see it being diminished. Moses did not want them to see this fading away. Why? It would take away any confidence that they would have in the law. And so Moses didn't want them to see that. Paul is saying, now I don't have to do that with the gospel. I could proclaim the gospel. I could tell you everything about the gospel. I don't have to hide anything. Why? Because the gospel is permanent. It's eternal. It will always be with us. Now the background for this whole thing is found in Exodus 34. Let me read it for you or you can see it on the screen. Because Paul is using this incident in the Old Testament to teach an important truth in the New Testament. It says, when Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him. And Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him. And the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. This is the passage upon which Paul is drawing for his lessons here in 2 Corinthians, showing us then again the importance of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after having been in the presence of the Lord, he even did not know that his face was shining. The children of Israel were afraid to come near him because of the glory on his face. But he told them to come near anyway, and they did so. And then, of course, the commandments and everything that God had told them, he told to the people. Now, in Exodus 34, 33, the text says, When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Now, it's not until we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, do we have an explanation as to why he did it. Notice, he did it so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So you see, the children of Israel didn't know this. We know this today because it revealed in the New Testament. The glory of his face, in other words, was a fading glory. 
In other words, the law that God had given to him had a transient glory. It was fading even when it was given, and Moses did not want them to see the end of it. Again, I say, it was not that Moses wanted to hide the glory itself, but rather the passing of that glory. One Bible commentator, A.F.F. F. W. Grant, puts it this way, and I like this. Quote, the glory on the face of Moses must give way to the glory in another face. And that other face was Jesus Christ, in other words. In other words, what Paul is saying here was that when the law was giving, was given, it could not stay permanently because it was not pointing to Moses, it was pointing to Jesus Christ. And as it faded away, the picture or the face of Jesus Christ would come more and more into view because it spoke of him. All of these things spoke of Jesus Christ. And the only way that Jesus could be revealed if the old covenant was done away. That's what he's teaching here. But now notice um, verse 14. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, that's when Paul was writing his letter, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the message of this passage here. We can only understand all of God's revelation to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The children of Israel did not realize the true significance of what Moses was doing. And down through the centuries, it has been this way with the Jewish people. And even at the time Paul was writing, they still could not understand that the law was not sufficient, that the law had to fade away. They still today do not understand that. But faith in Christ, as revealed in the gospel, removes the blindness from the minds of sinners that trusted in the law to make them right before God. Paul is saying here then that at the time that he wrote, when the Jews read the Old Testament, they did not discover the secret that Moses hid from their forefathers beneath the veil. Even today, they do not understand that. Moses did a good job in hiding that. It's still hidden to individual Jews as well as the nation of Jews. They did not realize that the glory of the Lord was a, of the law was a passing glory and that the law had found its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the veil was taken away in Christ. No matter how long the people of Israel would look at the law and study the law, they would not be able to see Christ fully. They would not be able to do it. It was fading away. It was a ministry of condemnation. Now, when you study this passage, take note of the word veil, because it is used in different ways in here. If you look carefully in your Bible, you will see, especially in King James, the word veil is in italics. Isn't that right? That means it was not in the original. It was put there by the translators in a way to help explain the text. But in some cases, they really, I believe, misapply the text. So, it's in italics. It was supplied by the translators. So, what may actually be referred to here is not the veil of blindness, but it could refer to the veil being the old covenant, which was done away in Christ. Or it could mean that the difficulty in understanding the Old Testament 
vanishes when the person comes to know Jesus Christ as Savior. This is how a well-known Bible scholar, Dr. Hodge, puts it, and I quote it. The Old Testament scriptures are intelligible only when understood as predicting and prefiguring Christ. The knowledge of Christ removes the veil from the Old Testament. The knowledge of Christ removes the veil from the Old Testament. Now verse 15. Even today, when they, referring to Jews, read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. Notice once again here, there's a slight change in emphasis. In the Old Testament, the veil was over the face of Moses, but now the veil lies on the hearts of the Jewish people. They are still trying to obtain righteousness on the principle of doing, never realizing that the work has already been done by Jesus Christ, their Messiah. They, the Jews, are seeking to gain salvation by their own merit, not realizing that the law utterly condemns them and that they should turn to the Lord for mercy and grace. This is why Paul is so careful to distinguish the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. There's no way that any effort, any work on our part could ever help to save us, none whatsoever. Paul wants to make that clear in the gospel. Life only comes through Jesus Christ and the fact that he accomplished the work for us. It is not through us doing anything because Christ has done it all. And notice verse 16. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What a glorious truth this is. Now the someone in the context here may refer to the individual Jew or it may refer to the Israel as a nation. But it also refers to the Gentile sinner as well. When anyone turns to the Lord and accepts Jesus Christ, then the veil is taken away concerning the truth of the Old Testament, the law. The obscurity is gone. The truth dawns that all the types and shadows of the law find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If the nation of Israel is in view here, then the verse points forward to a day yet in the future when Israel, the remnant, will come to recognize that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. If you go to Isaiah 53, when you read that chapter, and many times they apply it only to ourselves, but that chapter of Isaiah 53 actually refers to the nation of Israel finally coming to realize that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And Paul is predicting that here. When anyone turns to the Lord, they do so because they recognize that he was the one who died for them on the cross. And look at verse 17. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now there's another, this is another verse that is so misapplied today because it's taken out of his context. Remember, Paul has been emphasizing that Christ is the key to the Old Testament. Now, he re-emphasizes that truth by saying, now the Lord is the Spirit. Now, most versions, including the King James, capitalize Spirit, referring it to the Holy Spirit. But the context seems to suggest something else. The context suggests that the Lord or Jesus is the Spirit of the Old Testament, the same way the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. 
It means the Old Testament is filled with Jesus Christ. You cannot read the New Testament and get its, the Old Testament and get its truth if you miss Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures think, talking about the Old Testament, for in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they that spoke of me. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. But the, there's a veil that hides the understanding, the hearts of the believer, the unbeliever, especially the Jews. They cannot see that. That has to be lifted. Paul will tell us later on that, uh, that we actually blinded, our minds also blinded by Satan. But that has to be removed, and it can only be removed by the power of the Spirit of God. Now Paul comes to a glorious conclusion in verse 18. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. This is something that the law, the old covenant could never do. In the old covenant, Moses alone was allowed to see the glory of the Lord, only Moses. Under the new covenant, we all have the privilege of beholding Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord. Moses' face had to be veiled after he finished speaking with the people, but we have an unveiled face. We can see him face to face in his glory in and through the word of God. As Paul says in another passage, we can behold him as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. In other words, the mirror is the word of God. As we go to the Bible and look steadfastly into the pages of the word of God, we see the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in his glory. To be sure, we do not yet see him physically face to face, only as mirrored in the world, but we do see him nonetheless. And the more we go to the word, the more we see of his glory. And the beautiful thing is, the more we see of his glory, the more we reflect that glory. This is what Paul is getting at here. Notice he says, No, it is the glory of the Lord that we behold. Paul is not thinking so much of the moral beauty of Jesus on earth, but rather on his present glory, exalted at the right hand of God. Friends, as we are occupied, and this is the practical application of this passage, as we are occupied with the glory of the risen ascended, exalted Lord Jesus Christ in and through his word, we are transformed into his glorious image, ourselves. This is the secret of Christian growth and maturity and Christ-likeness. Occupation with Jesus Christ in and through his word, gazing upon Jesus Christ as revealed in his word, which is the new covenant, the gospel. Someone has said this, and I quote, not by, we don't, occupy ourselves with self that only brings defeat not by occupation with others that only brings disappointment but rather occupation with the glory of the Lord in his word and as so we become more and more like him and this marvelous transforming process takes us from glory to glory that's what the text means when it says we go from glory to glory how does that happen one level of glory to another the more we behold the glory of Christ in the word, we become more like him. It isn't a one-time event. 
This isn't something that happens in the crisis and all of a sudden we see all the glory of God and we become like him. This is the process. This is what we call practical sanctification. We continue to look into the word and the more we look into the word, the more we see of his glory and the more we see of his glory, the more we reflect that glory in our own life. And so whereas Moses' face reflected glory from the outside, the believer under the New Testament reflects the glory of God from the inside. It isn't something that we take on from the outside. It is something that we show from the inside. It's a whole different story. Remember what Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That's not right. 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it does not know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Notice now, we know that when he appears, what? We will be like him. Why? Because we will see him just as he is. You see, nothing will block our vision of him then. We will see him as he is. When we go into the word of God right now, we can see him in his glory, but not fully. It's just as a mirror reflecting it. And so even as we go from glory to glory, we cannot reach the apex of glory. But that will happen when we see him face to face. Why? Because we will see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, notice now, purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the process. That's moving from glory to glory. We are more purified in our lives as we gaze into the word and we see Jesus Christ. So if you look at it all life right now and you're not pleased at the way you're living, it's probably because you're not in the word of God. It's probably because you're not seeing Jesus Christ in the word. He's talking about seeing Jesus Christ now, just not seeing truths, but seeing Jesus Christ himself. Because that's what we need to move from glory to glory, to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of the new covenant, on the pages of the word of God. And so Paul is saying here to his opposition in, in Corinth, you think you have a ministry under the old covenant. Let me show you a real ministry. And he puts up the new covenant. He's saying what I have under the new covenant is, 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 and looking at what you have is nothing, nothing at all. And that tr translates to us today, my friends. Do you really cherish the word of God the way you should? Because if you want to see Jesus, you have to look in the word. No matter how nice another Christian might be living, and you might say you see Jesus in that person. You can only see Jesus the way he wants you to see him, by going into the word. And as you go into the word and you see his glory, you will take on that glory, and you will go from glory to glory, until one day, when he comes, nothing in the way, we will see him face to face, and then we will be just like him, in all of his glory. My friends, that's what it means to live under the old covenant. And next time, Lord willing, I'm going to talk about the difference in worship that has come about because of the new covenant. 
But for now, I want to encourage you to get into the word and to look at the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just look, listen to this uh, song before we close out. Father, may this be true of us. May we turn our eyes toward Jesus by going to the word of God so that we ourselves might be transformed, metamorphosized, as it were, from glory to glory into Christ-likeness. As we move towards that wonderful, glorious day when we shall see him as he is and we shall be made to be just like him as well. Thank you for this glorious hope. May we as your people then truly learn to know what it means to live under the new covenant that Jesus Christ gave his blood to bring into being. And all of God's people said, Amen. That's all right. Okay, I think we'll just close it. We don't need a closing song. Thank you very much.